Hello, everybody, and welcome to Universal Basic Podcast with Chris Proya. And I am your co-host, Dr. Cindy Banier, here to make sure that you have an amazing experience listening to this working class hero in Florida talk about all of the things that are important to you, especially concerning economics, workforce, and the state of today. So how's it going, Chris? It's going pretty good, Cindy. How you doing? It's been an interesting day, Chris. We had the abortion ban, six-week abortion ban, passed through the Florida legislature along with the open carry being signed in. And we just got word that Florida Department or Florida Democratic Party Chair Nikki Freed and Democratic Minority Leader of the Senate, Lauren Book, were both arrested protesting the abortion ban in Tallahassee. Now, this is being recorded, of course, on Monday, April 3rd at 9.22 p.m., so this will be a little bit of a delay, but pretty interesting things happening here in Florida, huh, Chris? Yeah, it's pretty telling that our fascist dictator DeSantis is throwing the head of the opposition party into jail at the first sign that he at the first chance he had to do it he did it that's crazy to me but yep i just told chris so that's why he doesn't yeah. hasn't had a lot of time to process this but anyway so what else do we have in store today today we are going to be talking about a favorite subject of mine we're going to be talking about income inequality and at least I have something that I believe that will fix it pretty fast and without a whole lot of rules to be talked about. But Great. Well, as we'll I'm look sure you know, that. income inequality basically refers to the unequal distribution of income among individuals or households within a population. High levels of income inequality will have various negative effects on society, including reduced social mobility, increased poverty, decreased levels of economic growth. It'll also exacerbate like social and political tensions today going on. And it leads to greater disparities in health outcomes, education, access to opportunities. Basically, the rich will get richer, the poor stay poorer. And it's not a good look for what's supposed to be the leader of the free world in the first world. Yeah. And I know that from my background in international relations, we look at income inequality as a measure of stability going along the lines of the Gini coefficient. Are you going to get into that? I did do a little bit of looking into the Gini coefficient. Basically, that goes into, it's measured from anywhere between zero and one, but it's usually read off as a percentage point. And most of the free world, most of Europe and all the countries that they say look up to America, they're all in the low numbers, like 20, maybe 30% of a Gini coefficient, where the U.S. is at about 41 or 42, working in the middle of the country list. And then the worst will be like, bad places in Africa and whatnot, they'll be like 60% of income inequality. Basically, one guy owns all the wealth and everybody else is just left to feed for scraps. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly how that works. So when the social scientists like me are looking to measure income inequality, that's what they use. So they use the Gini coefficient. And it is basically, like Chris said, it's perfect equality as everyone has the same amount of money and perfect inequality is one person has all the money and it's measurement 
between that, between those two extremes. And the lower it is, the better, the smaller the range between top and bottom, essentially. And mm. as those numbers get closer to one, you are having an increasingly small amount of people with an increasingly larger a slice of the economic pie. And this has historically caused all the problems that Chris just talked about. And so social scientists look at that because it's really important to track. So this is not just about, hey, who's rich and who's poor. But if you have a small concentrated amount of wealth and a large population without access to wealth, then you're going to have problems. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, I'm getting over a cold. Yeah, social safety nets, basically labor protections, all of that just goes completely out of order once the income inequality gets to more towards the perfect, like the worst that it could be. You know what I mean? So when it's just, yeah, a, a very small few yeah. amount of people, right? So it's the measure is one, right? But obviously, that's not how it really works. It's still, but this is how nerdy people like me come up with these scales, right? And so it's one and zero. Right? The next thing I wanted to get into was I like to take a look at what the other side is doing as a as it regards to income inequality. Republicans they like to pull the wool over their eyes, like this is not a thing that's actually happening. Basically. What they believe is that promoting economic growth by reducing the taxes or by reducing regulations basically will fix any economic problems. And I hear it from Republicans all the time, basically. What about all the poor people? Like We keep seeing the poor people and the homeless get worse and worse as the time goes on. And they just believe that poor people are a feature of the system and not a fault in the system. Yeah, and as I hear a lot of Republican folks, they like to talk about to explain this to people, they say things like job creators, right? We have to take care of the job creators. We're yeah. gonna have tax cuts for the job creators. And then this goes all the way back down to, back to trickle-down economics, right? Which was the deregulation of starting in the, Repub the Reagan era in the 80s, right where they started to take away some of those protections that had actually reduced income inequality from the beginning of the 1900s through the 1970s. And since the Reagan trickle-down era and this Republican emphasis on job creators, we have seen a growing income disparity since that time. Definitely. Um Supporters of tax cuts will argue that they can stimulate economic growth by encouraging businesses investment and consumer spending through tax cuts. And they believe lower tax rates will lead to higher levels of consumption and investment. But what we actually see is basically the cup for the rich just gets bigger and bigger right. and none of it actually trickles down. That's basically because what happens with what tax we've cuts learned like that. Exactly. What we've learned through the tax cuts. And now we know that there were tax cuts under Reagan. There were tax cuts under Bush, a W. Bush, George W. w. Bush, Bush yeah. as well as the huge tax cut under Trump. What we've mm -hmm. learned through that is when you give tax cuts to the wealthy, they do not increase their spending. And so actually it's a totally false premise that they're working on. When you give tax cuts to the wealthy, 
they put that money into investments and the stock market that will give them residual income, but not actually facilitate economic growth because it's not part of the consumer economy. It actually takes that money completely out of the economic cycle that we've talked about when you are putting stimulus into the economy, for example. So like almost to a certain extent, tax cuts are the opposite of stimulus and tax cuts, especially when they go up to the wealthy, leave nothing, take that money out of the economy. So it's not going to the server at the restaurant. It's not going to the retail employee who sold them an item. They're not spending money because part of that has to do with the fact that this trickle-down economic bullshit has worked so well. That income and inequality has grown so much. That top wealthy portion of Americans, they can't spend their money fast enough. They can't, like... Mm -hmm. They, there's nothing more interesting for them anymore. This is one of the reasons why Jeff Bezos is going to the moon, right? And going to outer space. It's because, shit, what else do I spend my billions of dollars on? I might as well go to space. Did he ever get his boat out of the bridge lock thing that they had going on there for a while? I stopped sure. following that story after a little bit. But I'm yeah, sure him and the other they, Russian oligarchs probably, you know, they just lay down some fat stacks and made it happen. Right. But the interesting thing that I found doing research on this podcast, the Tax Reform Act of 86 under Reagan and the Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2001 under Bush, they still have a little bit of legitimacy because people could still argue with both points. But the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 has been resoundingly a failure. Like, the guy that was supposed to be winning, every time somebody talks about that, it's been, oh, this hasn't worked, that kind of thing. I and you know what's my favorite thing about that piece of shit tax cut? <laughs> Is that it's the same people who are the deficit hawks, who are so right. worried about the deficit, they just forget that Trump tax cut to the uber wealthy. It was a major contributor to our deficit they just forget that yeah. like like let's just pull the lunch from the kids at school and they forget that trump their dear leader was the one who issued that tax cut that has put us so significantly far behind in the deficit if you believe in such a thing next thing we should talk about is deregulation republicans like to support all kinds of deregulation they think anytime that the government is in the way it's bad like reagan the reaganomics quote was one of the words you can never hear. Hi, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. Here to help. That kind yep. of thing. Which you'll see in our next thing they, is BS even in the Republican policy because the next thing talks about something they need to regulate, but they don't want to do it because of this right here. They always argue for deregulation and they say that it promotes competition by reducing barriers to entry. That alone is BS because all they got to do is put a tax in the beginning and nobody can get in except for the already rich. They say it encourages innovation by allowing companies to experiment with new products and services without being hampered by restrictive regulations. But we see all the time that these regulations are there to protect the environment, to protect human health. That's why the regulations are there. Yeah. And just Between that. Those are pretty good reasons 
for us to look at deregulation with a more critical eye because it's been very obvious that we have a ton of innovation. In fact, the United States leads the world in research and development. We are still the leading place for foreign direct investment. So we constantly have people from all over the world coming to the United States to innovate to places like Silicon Valley and our other research institutions, which is another reason why we actually need to invest in our research institutions, because it is our public research institutions that are world class that lead Mm -hmm. into the innovation of the private sector. And we also learned through time, right? So after this Reagan economics and the deregulation era, that not only was it bullshit about the innovation, but that we have more companies that are coming together, right? So we actually see rather than smaller, more competitive companies, there's actually because of the deregulation and the antitrust era area, we saw more companies coming together and merging over the last decade, causing these huge companies that are too big to fail and eat up large sectors of our economy and their market. And so it's not competitive anymore. Because almost any food item you eat or drink is either under Coke, Pepsi, or Nestle. Nestle. Yeah, they're all subsidiaries of the same company. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the other thing. And this concept that the regulation itself is bad for business is ridiculous as well, because any organization, any corporation that is a good steward, that has good corporate social responsibility is going to want to participate in the better health of their economy and their community. And it's sometimes those regulations help companies to make investments and changes in the right way where they may have not understood in another way as well. So I know that it can, a lot of people see this as a burden. And I think for us here in Southwest Florida, a really great example is thinking about within the construction industry, the requirements for hurricane strength homes, especially the windows. I think the windows is like a very clear example, right? Because back in the day, they used to build like the house I live in is like a 1950s cottage. It's got windows that are like funky, right? But if it's going to take an impact in the hurricane, it's going to shatter into a billion pieces, right? And now any new home that's been built has to have hurricane impact windows. Now they're obviously vastly more expensive than these janky things from the 50s. And it costs a lot of money to put them in. And we saw how many homes on Fort Myers Beach got washed away and differentiating factor between the ones that were able to stand, which by the way, did you see that the scientists realized that Hurricane Ian was a category five just before it hit the coast. It came in as a high four, but now after all the research that they did on the winds, it was a category five. So that hurricane came blowing in and the only houses and buildings that were standing were the ones after 2000 when those regulations and hurricane building codes went up. So I think that's a really salient example. It's it. Yes, it's a pain in the. Yes, it makes building a little bit more expensive. But when push comes right. to shove, and a Cat Five hurricane is barreling down on your door, that frankly we didn't even realize was going to come because of freaking global warming, and it was a tropical storm <laughs> one day, and then a Category Five the next. You're going to want to make sure that your house was built to regulation. For sure.
Oh, man, yeah. And now let's get into the, when I was doing research, I laughed at this so hard. So we just got done talking about deregulation. The third point that Republicans try to say to help income inequality is they say we got to support policy to increase access to education and on-the-job training, which would actually help individuals gain the skills that they need to access these higher-paying jobs and reduce income inequality. But when you go to actually research what policies Republicans have put into place for education or on-the-job training, it's basically just dropped on the shoulders of the companies that they're so intent on deregulating and therefore, nothing more than mere lip service that I found. Maybe I'm wrong, but no. I have not found any actual evidence to support that they really agree with this. They just say this. This is something they like to say. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree with that. And my, I have some experience here working in workforce development and the programs under WOYA, which is the federal program to help with the workforce training that includes oh. on-the-job training and supposed to help apprenticeships and technical college, right? Republicans love to talk about this. They really do. Especially these days. They're like, oh, trade school. We need more trade school. She, my mom said this to me the other day, too. She's like, right. they need to have trade school. My dad went to welding school in high school. I'm like, mom, they still have that. They have. It hasn't gone away. It's still there. It's just that nobody likes it and they don't want to do it. And the kids think that it's stupid. And a lot of times those jobs aren't actually correspondent. And so they don't necessarily want to do that. So there's this misconception that we have this glut of educated people and this lack of people in these other service industries related to technical training and on the job and apprenticeship. And here's the yeah. thing I'll tell you about the apprenticeship and the on the job training. Almost no companies do it because it's such a pain yeah. in the ass. <laughs> and it's like, uh, th because it comes down from the federal government too, it's like they get money to do it, but like, they don't really want to do it. And in fact, companies mm. in the trade and service industry in particular here in Southwest Florida, where if you're not working in hospitality and retail, you're working in construction, right, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> you know that because you've worked in these industries too, right? Yeah. They will go to the technical schools and poach the people they need before they finish their certificates and then never help those people complete. And that happens so right. rampantly with electricians and plumbers and carpenters that no technical school in Southwest Florida actually offers those programs because they cannot keep people enrolled in them, even though they're the most in-demand certification in the region. So right. there we go about companies not really actually giving a shit about that. They just want people to meet their bottom line. It seems so easy to just, this isn't my fix, but this is a fix. It seems so easy to just say, hey, we need this many people to be electrician. Let's support these people and get them their own company, basically. And they can do that on their own without having to go to these big companies. Let's get them that kind of education to do it. But we actually have to regulate people to do that. We can't just say, oh, it'll work itself out. Shockingly, we make people who want to be like electricians, for instance, take certain yeah. certifications and have a certain set of standards and then get licensed to do that work so they don't kill themselves or other people. And Shocking. just like college, we just give them X amount of time to pay back whatever they have to pay to get obtain these things. Why should we be charging these people up front for these certifications when we allow people to go to college? for years and then 
paid on the back end, supposedly. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes there's uh, actually here we have the workforce development board and that's actually all across the state of Florida and they can I, provide a lot of support around some of those technical certifications. Part of the problem in the state of Florida, and this is another way that you can look at just how full of shit the Republicans are, because I've heard Ron DeSantis specifically say, oh, yay, technical college, blah, 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 blah. I actually commented on a tweet of his the other day on this. So he was talking about, oh, yeah, we're going to get technical college going, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that's great. I said, if you really want to do, this is what you need to do. You need to fix the way that the state funds technical colleges. This is such like an inside baseball thing, but let me tell you about it, okay? What happens, the <laughs> reason, remember I just told you how electricians, carpenters, and plumbers are the most in demand, but we have no right. programs in them because the people right. are getting, they're getting poached for work, which is great, right? But they're not finishing their certification. The problem is that the state only pays for those butts in seats. So if somebody starts a program, but then doesn't complete it, the state does not okay. pay and reimburse right. the school for that person. And if they want innovation and technical space, if they want to actually have this type of ongoing apprentice program and technical education in these needed areas, they need to flip the funding around and make sure the schools can provide <laughs> them and yeah. not just make it. So that they're incentivized mm -hmm. to close the program because they're in such high demand that they get hired out straight away. So the last thing that Republicans, they love this one, used to say that income inequality is not really a thing. They think welfare reform is the way to get income inequality fixed. And what they mean by welfare reform is basically eliminating welfare. They support social welfare programs such as Medicaid, food stamps. They believe that this disincentivizes people to work and actually contributes to long-term poverty when it's really the opposite. Every dollar that we spend in a program such as Medicare, food stamps, or even housing Let's just take Medicare and food stamps. Every dollar we spend towards Medicare and food stamps ends up putting like a dollar and a quarter back into the economy. When that I was sounds running like for a state game. Senate, yeah. When I was running for state senate, I found out that housing the homeless is three times cheaper than just letting them stay homeless. Because if you factor in all the police work that goes into taking care of homeless people, all the hospital bills that get racked up because the homeless come into the hospital looking for basically a roof over the head and food to eat. Yeah. <laughs> Housing first. Yeah. Right. Crazy. It just proves that I realized that welfare takes up a large part of our budget, but to me, it's worth it. It's worth it to raise these people up out of the streets and get them the help they need. And build it's this not economy as from the bottom as, up. Yeah. It's not nearly as much as defense and the federal budget. And yeah, yeah, like you said, there's a net gain and you have long-term support, better outcomes for children, better outcomes for the elderly. And yes, you actually save money when you do things like house the homeless because they're not eating up valuable services when it comes to emergency rooms and policing. And they can actually stabilize, right? They can get the medical right. care, they can get the mental health support, and they can get substance abuse treatment, which is a huge component that contributes to homelessness in this country. And the idea is 
that these people are worthy of help. And that's what I always call Republicans back out on because their attack on poor, the poor people in this country is be by saying that they are immoral, right? That they are lazy and they're just taking advantage of the system. And that's actually not the case. There are the vast majority of people who are on any type of government support, where it's state support or federal support, are people who have fallen on hard times. Medical bankruptcy, for instance, is the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country. We have tens of thousands of people going bankrupt because of medical costs every single year. That is a major contributing factor to people getting on any type of public assistance. Also, just long-term health, chronic uh, health problems. If they're not going straight bankrupt, they're going bankrupt slowly, right? So, you know, you're paying for diabetes medication or cancer medication for yourself or somebody in your family, a loss of a job, a sudden illness, breaking your leg, a car accident. These are the things that set people off on a path, right? And over 80% of the people who are on some type of public support are on it for one time, and it's a short period of time. That's you got two years, I believe. Yeah. yeah, folks who are doing it, entering into the homeless services as well. So they're coming in, they're going out, they're getting stabilized and moving forward. Now, that being said, there are some people who take advantage of the system, like there is anywhere. But one of the mm. most interesting things that I've learned on my path is that when it comes to federal social welfare, there's actually a lower amount of waste. That is people who are taking advantage of the system and fraud. It's about one to 2%, right? Then there is shrinkage at Walmart, right? And shrinkage is stealing <laughs> and theft, usually stealing, on the yeah. inside. And yeah. that companies, big companies like Walmart, they calculate when they're doing their profits, when they're doing their P&Ls at the end of the year, right? They're mm -hmm. calculating between nine and 11% of shrinkage and they account for that. We're talking about a government system that is more efficient than, a than welfare when it comes to theft and fraud, yet it's still getting criticized in the way it does. And I think that's actually an extremely well-run system if you can outpace Walmart. Yeah, it was it's crazy to me that we always talk or we always hear about and I'm saying like the general, we always hear about these welfare queens taking advantage of the system, blah, 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 with it, whatever they wanted to call it. But we never talk about how like the rich are taking advantage of the system and hoarding this massive amount of money rather than one person maybe spending an extra $30,000 a year. Yeah, on, that uh, welfare queen was just a racist trope that Donald Trump pushed yeah. to roll back welfare and to have tax cuts for the rich and to institute trickle down economics. He had to create that paint, that narrative for Americans to buy into it. But actually you're right. It's the other way around. The welfare Queens are Donald Trump and his ilk. His buddies, he's yeah. the one that's <laughs> declared bankruptcy a ton of times and gotten it wiped away. And he's was quite literally living off the government dime and those types of folks who are getting those tax cuts 
And a lot of times, listen, these folks are getting tax cuts on their income tax and then getting tax cuts on their business. And then they have this other company and then they have S corps like Donald Trump. You just go to do, they're setting it up all over the place. And then, Hey, if you are actually a philanthropic person, you can get another tax cut for handing money over right. to nonprofits because gosh, we don't want that going to the public coffers. We want to make sure it goes to the one nonprofit that we love. Right. So we can make sure it goes to one legged dogs on Pine Island from now until the end of time. Yeah. I worked in philanthropy too, and that shit happens. Yeah, I don't doubt that. We talked about the, uh... oh, I'm drawing a blank here. What's that scale? Genie coefficient. I, okay, I had it. Yeah, we talked about that, but in my opinion, the easiest metric of looking at income inequality, especially throughout the time, is looking at CEO to worker pay ratio. Basically what this is, However many full-time workers it takes to pay one CEO. And back in the 60s, this was like 21 to 1. In the 80s, after Reagan did his little Reaganomics thing, it jumped up to about 60 to 1, I believe. And nowadays, it's at 351 to 1. The average CEO makes 351 times more than the average worker of that company. And some companies, such as Tesla and other ones like it, they're as high as a thousand to one and more. And yeah. I think that, and not only is the CEO getting paid that, but you got to think the CEO is also getting paid somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. It's, that's just crazy to me. That well, You're also then getting your shareholders and your stock buyback. It's crazy that to think that one person, is he really doing 351 times the work that I'm doing in that company. I don't believe so. No, I don't think so I either. did that part. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's crazy. And yeah, I've seen that. And it's not the same in other countries. And I know that I lived in Japan and I think the highest that they have is something like 70 to one is like the highest CEO to average employee ratio in Japan overall. And you think of them as they're one of the leading economies in the world and they have big tech industry as well so they you right. don't need to have this exacerbated ceo salaries it's been wild to me and i've sat down and talked with different folks on why that it's like that and the answer is always oh we got to get the best talent in there but it's like they're running through ceos like drano and right. <laughs> it's like it's just one goober after the next and it's just whichever guy is like climbing the ladder best. I've really, it's been few and far between where I've met a CEO and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're like a genius that's going to help this company. It's, oh no, you're just the guy that was willing to backstab enough to get to the top. So basically, this is my fix. I think we wouldn't even have to change anything else. We wouldn't have to change a whole lot of the regulations. I think the rest of it would work itself out. I think that if we limited CEO to worker pay ratio, back down to 21 to 1 all across America, I think everything else would work itself out. This would immediately reduce income inequality. Those that are already rich will stay rich. It'll just fix it from here on out. It'll increase employee morale in companies. It'll increase loyalty and productivity in companies. Because now all of a sudden people are making what they deserve to make, basically. It'll encourage companies to actually invest in their workers by offering better benefits and training programs 
rather than paying just a few individuals these ridiculous salaries. Republicans will argue this will disincentivize CEOs from taking on the risks and responsibilities of their position. But I highly doubt that. I think that if, let's just say every CEO of every company quit today because we implemented this program, they say, oh my God, this is ridiculous. Who's right behind them? There's 20 other people right behind them that are willing to take this at the reduced rate just because they have that title. Oh, look at me. I'm now the CEO. Oh, I got all these responsibilities. You know, 20 30 other people will jump right in their chair. Yeah. If, and if all the CEOs quit tomorrow, do you know what would happen? Absolutely nothing. Like nothing would fucking happen. <laughs> nothing would happen. Would still yeah. run. Things would still be produced. Things would still be shipped. Because at this point, yeah, the CEO is little more than a vanity project. I mean, if, if Elon Musk doesn't prove that, right? And yeah. actually, when you get activist CEOs like Elon Musk, they screw up a company worse. And I heard mm-hmm. that that when at Tesla, right, when he took over Tesla, there's like a whole team of people that manage him so he doesn't fuck up the whole company. And the reason that Twitter is suffering much with him is because Twitter didn't have the staff to manage Elon Musk when he came in, especially because he fired like half the staff once he got a foot in the door. But they just didn't have the team to keep him from putting his fingers in everything and screwing it up. But that's a legitimate thing that other companies that have Elon Musk as a CEO have to do. So you could even make the case that potentially companies could be even more productive and more efficient if they cut the fat at the top. Right. And they don't even have to cut it outside of the company. It'll just spread to everybody else helping make that company what it is. And they'll have the incentive to now work and make that a better company. Whatever company we're talking about here. And uh, I love it, Chris. It's a, a great idea. That, like, yeah, a lot of people wonder if this has been tried before. Countries have implemented policy to limit this kind of thing. Switzerland has what they call the Minder Initiative, I believe. It sets a mandatory limit on executive pay. The highest paid executive is no allowed to earn no more than 12 times the lowest paid employees. Some states and cities, even in the U.S., have implemented similar policies for companies that do business with the government, requiring them to disclose and limit the ratio between CEO to median worker pay. But these are just not widely adopted because we have all these uh, false narratives that hide behind the voodoo economics that say, oh, lower taxes will grow income somehow, even though we don't ever see it actually happen. And we've had income stagnation for since 1974, I think. I'm like the harbinger of death for the millennials as an elder millennial, as somebody who's done all the things that they're supposed to get an education. And where am I now? Oh. (laughs) So I think once we implement these policies, I think the impact of them would be just mind blowing. Like we would just have a completely different nation. And it's not socialism the all scary term socialism it's still capitalism it's just more compassionate capitalism let's get the money into everybody's hands and not just stop one percent make this place a better country basically yeah one rule one rule rule them all i love it chris that was amazing great idea good information and 
is that is there a final parting word for us here this week on Universal Basic Podcast? No, I don't ever have the final word. Did one word, one rule to rule them all. Twenty one X. Let's get it done. Yeah, fantastic. So this was an amazing exploration into income inequality. Thank you so much to our host, Chris Proya, for taking us through this. And if you enjoyed this, make sure that you subscribe to us on Big Mouth Media at Big mouthmediafl.com. This podcast can be yours for $2.99 a month or get the annual plan for $29.99 a year. You will help working folks like Chris and I keep the lights on quite literally. And you'll also help <laughs> us keep getting our message out because we know that here in Florida, independent media and journalists are being attacked every single day especially if Ron DeSantis gets his way in this legislature. So we need your help to keep going so that we can keep bringing you high quality information, just like you heard today on Universal Basic Podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.